Hello and welcome to Journeys, a series of podcasts from Cultural Enterprises. My name is Jill Fennick and I am the Chief Executive of the Association for Cultural Enterprises. Over the course of the series, I will be chatting with colleagues from across the cultural sector, all in senior roles and commercial activities, in a bid to unearth the person behind the job title. This series was prompted by a reflection on my own journey in our sector, much of which was more by accident than design, and a curiosity about the journeys of others. We'll find out how they got here, what they've learned along the way, and their thoughts on the future of our sector. I hope you enjoy the series. Today I have with me Caroline Brown, who was Head of Commercial Services at the British Library, but also on top of that, she is the Chair of the Association for Cultural Enterprises. So it's a double delight this morning to talk to Caroline. Good morning to you, Caroline. Morning, Jill. Happy New Year to everybody. And Happy New Year, quite so. Can I start by asking you how you got into the UK cultural sector in the first place? Yeah, and I guess the answer to that is probably very similar to a lot of people. It was a complete accident. When I was at university, I studied art history um, and really history and art and actually sport were my real interests. Um, when I was uh, a child and when I was went to university, that's what I perceived. Then I really didn't know what to do with an art history degree. Uh, it was 1985. Um, it was it was no great era for sort of getting into the arts so mm. I thought about what am I going to do and I ended up actually teaching because whilst I'd been a student during the holidays uh, I'd always taught at outdoor centres things like canoeing and climbing that sort of thing so that, that was so I thought how am I going to join up these things so I thought that's what I've been doing that's all my work experience was actually working with young people uh, so I thought I'd better go and sort of ratify that by uh, doing a teaching course and I'd actually spent a year uh, after university full-time teaching outdoor education mm -hmm. so I thought I'll go and get a proper qualification and I did that and I carried on doing lots of outdoor sports I went back to Leeds did a, a teaching degree uh, and I carried on loving going to art galleries and, and doing lots of historical things as well um, but I actually hated teaching in the classroom and I said I'm the only teacher who left teaching because of the teachers not because of the children. Uh, I, I said I'd had lots of experience working with young people that was fine but the environment for me that kind of constraint around the classroom uh, and actually walking into a staff room in 1985 when we were bringing in the national curriculum was a really depressing place right. and uh, I kept walking into staff room going oh my god everybody looks really depressed yeah. uh, I don't want to be there in 20 years. And so I really, I just ran away and I went to Australia for a year. And that's when I started getting really interested in wine and I visited a lot of vineyards. Can I just Sorry, say before we get into Australia, because actually yeah. it'd be interesting to know where your, your life story started out. I believe it was Wales, is that right? Yeah, I come from a small Welsh village called Brumbo. Uh, and it, 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 was a, it was a fantastic place to grow up. So a lot of people escape small villages and go to the city, but for me, probably one of the most accepting and tolerant places I've ever lived was in this very small Welsh village. And that's because it's a tiny community. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, it's, it's a quite a poor community. Um, everybody works in the steelworks, including my dad, though he worked in the office. Mm -hmm. um, and it's just a real sense of wanting children to achieve. And I, I don't know what it's like now, but you know, there was a real Welsh sense of investment in education. And, and that had been, you know, that's a, goes right back to the early 19th century. And, 
So that was still the ethos of my school. It was a very old fashioned school. Um, and, and that ethos was, you know, whatever you're good at. So they didn't mind that I wanted to play football. You know, girls didn't generally play football, but they didn't mind. They encouraged you to do anything that you were good at. And, and there was a sense of pride. So I, I really value that, that background I had. And, and I'm, as I went on through university, I thought actually my world's getting smaller in lots of ways. I found it much more middle class and, and in some ways culturally shrinking, strangely, compared to the kind of tolerance that I'd had as a kid. So really encouraged, interested in art. You know, we went to visits to London with school, to art galleries, things like that. So that it was always encouraged. And so I, I really value my background in that I you know, don't come from anything that anybody would perceive as you know as easy access to culture or the arts you know small village not very well off but actually because of my parents and because of the kind of education uh support from the kind of school I went to then yeah you know if you want to do art history I mean who, who does art history from a small world village I don't speak exactly exactly I don't uh, and so I couldn't get into most art history degrees because I, I I you know I'm terrible at languages and you and you have to have that it's a very middle class people people always look at you if you say you've got an art history degree they just literally go well you come from a class background they go you couldn't be further from the truth yeah you know I, I come from this I mean Brumbo that is actually the translation of Brumbo from Welsh into English is hill of dirt uh you know because it's literally <laughs> nothing there it's a big steelworks it's gone now um but if you drove into the village all you saw was slag heaps and, and massive steelworks which probably was 80 percent of the people worked in the steelworks so you know it's a very humble background in that way and but it was such a warm environment to grow up in thanks for, for sharing that with us so back to australia yeah so so yes i just spent i had a fantastic year in australia and, and worked in a vineyard not very posh vineyard, uh, um, but also visited a lot of vineyards. And of course, what Australians are brilliant at, and again, it's this snobby thing. So our history can be very snobby. Wine can be very snobby. So my entire raison d'etre in life is to enjoy all the things that I'm not supposed to have access to because of who I am. Uh, I take real pride and pleasure in that. And I think that's what motivates me around have other people having that access. So yeah. Australians, uh, of course, some Australians are snobby about wine, but but they really, you can visit a vineyard and, and it's not just the big, you know, uh, commercial vineyards, but you, you can just rock up and they'll give you tasting and generally they'll be quite nice to you. And, you know, I was 21 years old, I knew nothing, uh, but they're just very generous and I learned a lot. Uh, and I learned a lot about retailing in a way because I learned what is great is sharing your knowledge and your passion with somebody who knows less than you or, or is interested uh and and how important that can be and so you know if you go to certainly then if you went to a french vineyard it was a very different experience you know if you couldn't afford to buy a case of wine or so it's a much more snobby experience and, and you know it's changed a bit but actually it was the australians who led the way with it so i think that kind of culture around you can be really passionate about something yeah. you can really want to disseminate that information and you can be really inclusive and warm about it so that's what i brought back to the uk and of course then i had uh, an art history degree, a teaching qualification, and I'd been bumming around Australia for a year, so I was really yeah. not brilliantly employable. But it just so happened that I'd been—I got friends from university, and I went to stay with them when I came back, uh, and they were living in Sheffield. And just happened that in that week it was Christmas, and uh, I'd been dating Don Eccles already in Sheffield. Ah. And so that was my whole how retail and I came together was because of wine and. Uh, so I just walked in. And a good reason, has to be yeah. said. <laughs> and I think the manager wasn't very keen on giving me the job, but but the area manager happened to be in. So uh, 
and then we started talking about wine and again visiting Australia and, and uh, you know, what I'd done slowly gave me the job and yeah I was there for 16 years I mean not in that shop I've, I've moved around a lot and uh, so right around northwest Scotland then down to the southeast in London um, and so that yeah Rodbins was a big part of that. Sounds like a really sort of nice atmosphere to work in though good people perhaps? Yeah really good people uh, well, yeah, a real mix of people, but again, it's always, you could be really, again, it's this, it's this non, it's taking the, uh, what I loved about it is you have some 50 year old, you know, corporate type coming in and they're talking to you as a 25 year old scruffy, you're there in your jeans and your t-shirt and they're asking you advice. And I had a brilliant experience, which was a, a very snobby lawyer coming in and saying um, that his, his boss was going to become the, I was calling him the sheriff of Sheffield or whatever he is, but you know, high sheriff. That they're having this uh, reception and that he wants some advice about the wine. So I chose quite an old fashioned style of wine, which I just thought they'd like, which is a big, heavy kind of claret. And this lawyer was so snobby to me and patronising. But then, of course, his boss came in to do the tasting and he, he was like, this is fantastic. I love all these wines and it's yeah, brilliant. Yeah. And it's just this moments of, yeah, you know, you, you again, you're traditionally wine retailing can be very snobby. Um, the validation good. is what yeah what you've what you, yeah and I, it's that but also I had fantastic customers I had one customer who used to buy me wine and that's because yeah. he knew Thursday was delivery day that's when we got some interesting bottles and he would literally come straight from where he was a also a lawyer he was a brilliant guy uh, and he'd come in and he'd actually tell me and we had a case of wine and he said right I'm going to buy six of those and you buy the other six and it turned out to be Ridge Giesaville Zinfandel which is a fantastic wine it was probably about eight quid a bottle and you know, I've drunk it all, but um, you probably want <laughs> a lot more now. But um, but just that generosity—it's one of those, you know, where people are generous with their knowledge, and that's what I love about this sector. So, to answer this is a very long answer to your question, but um, eventually, I mean, as everybody knows, Oddbins had its woes, and it got sold a few times. And by 2005, I'd really thought, well, I've had the best of it. I'd, I've been there through all the years where it was, you know, really was an winning organisation. Uh, and you know, and it's physically tough. Uh, you know, even as an area manager, you're working, you're on the road a lot. And I was, I was doing, you know, easily 60, 70 hours every week. Uh, you, you know, you do your week and then you do your paperwork on Saturday morning and, and, and that kind of thing. So I thought, you know, I don't want to drive it around the M25 much longer in my life. No, no. And, and so I had a little bit of reckoning with myself. And I was like, right, what have I got now? So I've got all this retailing experience and my, I've got the wine, the retailing, but I've still got the history and the art history. And what do I want to do? And I just saw an advert for head of retail for the National Maritime Museum. And I remember just seeing it in the newspaper. I said, that's my job. That's what happened. And uh, yeah. so I ended that up. was, indeed. Yeah, and, and that's how I, and, you know, I, I went to the Maritime Museum, which then became um, so Royal Museum's Greenwich. It was called Maritime Museum when I joined. And uh, um, I worked with Roy Clare there, who's the director. And, and Roy was very encouraging. We'd actually shared a pub when I worked at what the um, Fairthorn, which is a, an outdoor centre in a place called Botley near Southampton. He he because he, he was in the Royal Navy and he'd been based there. So we, we I think it was the, the fact we'd both been to the Dolphin that got me the job. Oh, I see. <laughs> <laughs> the, the Dolphin in Botley. I. Uh, I uh, Oh, it's okay. fantastic. It sounds like most of your interviews haven't really been standard fare from what you're saying. People are all got wine, beer. Yes, yeah. yes. Common theme emerging, Jim. But you went on there, didn't you, to become commercial director in the years that you were with National Maritime Museum? Yeah, so that, jo that job changed a lot. 
Uh, ironically, I think I finally became commercial director just before I left because we changed, uh, we actually created a proper trading board, but that only happened just before I left. So I always reported in, I reported as the finance director and, and the structure changed um, when I left or just before I left. Um, but yes, I, I mean, it, so it was obviously, it wasn't just the National Maritime Museum, it was Queen's House and uh, the Royal Observatory. So fascinating places. I mean, truly fascinating history. And I love Greenwich. Uh, I think anybody's ever worked there, you never quite get it out of your system because it's such a, I mean, architecturally, historically, it's just such a fascinating place. If you, and if you love architecture, you've got Inigo Jones, you know, the first classical house in Britain is built there. You've got Chris, you've got, you've got Wren, you've got Hawksmoor, it's just fantastic architecture and, you know, Tudor history, all sorts of things going on. So it's a wonderful place. And it was a big wrench leaving that physical space to go to the British Library because it's so beautiful. Yeah. And then you, you know, British Library very much, I mean, some you love or loathe that building, but it is on the Euston and Midland Road. So compared to Greenwich, you know, in the very open spaces in Royal Park, it's, it was quite a, a wrench in that respect. But uh, yeah, so that, they're, they're the two. I've, I've been at the library now for it'll be 10 years this year, actually. So what do you find the most gratifying aspect, the, more, the best aspect of the role that you're in? Is that easy for you to pin down? I mean, it is tricky. I, I suppose at library, I have a, it's a much more of a mixed role in, in that it's not purely commercial. Yeah. So I would say I get involved in lots of things which are not fully commercial, um, which is interesting. I guess the same things motivated me through Greenwich and uh, the British Library in that you have all these unexpected experiences. You know, you never quite know. I have a ridiculous, you one that time you might be talking about the grease traps broken in the kitchen you know which is the the always oh, the bane of my life you know i i hate grease traps um <laughs> because you never get away if you if you got if you're commercial in any way you're never quite getting away from the, the kitchen yeah. in some respect but at other times you're talking about something really esoteric or you know fantastic collection item that's going on loan you know Lindisfarne gospels back in newcastle this year and just um, and and you know you, you you're working on with the retail team on how you're supporting that and but just yeah amazing experiences and and, re, and and challenges that you never would consider i mean coming to the library was a massive revelation for me i sort of got used to how museums worked a bit because that was a revelation when I joined. They're very complicated places. But then a national collection in a library is so complicated because you've got sound collections and newspaper collections and yeah, books and all sorts of things. Digit, you know, we collect digital content. Uh, so it's vast. And uh, yeah, it took me a long time to know what people were talking about. Oh, um, and for, for pe people who haven't been into that uh, permanent exhibition downstairs in the, in the British Library on that first floor as you go in, just totally amazing. I mean, to have that juxtaposition of letters from the Beatles and letters from Galileo to his lawyer and goodness knows, I'm probably completely misquoting this, but there is a fascinating, you know, eclectic mix of, of ephemera, yeah. isn't there, from across it's the It's absolutely amazing. And you have to remind yourself every now and again, I just, if it, I will just go in that gallery and spend yeah. half an hour in there because because the, otherwise the job could, you know, sometimes it could be anyway. I mean, particularly during COVID, we've all been doing this a lot and, and uh, talking on Zoom. And uh, it, just to be in the office and, one, just the energy of being there, but to, to go and see the collections. And, and we've got Elizabeth and Mary exhibition on the moment. I mean, you're, you're literally seeing the letters that Elizabeth wrote 
to Mary directly, lots of other collection items. And, and you know, it's hard to comprehend. I actually, I was staring at one so intently that I actually hit my head on the glass of the case, which almost set off a really security incident. Everybody stopped in the whole gallery. I was like, no, I just hit my head. Um, I was so desperately staring at the, at the page, but you know, incredible. It is incredible. Oh, absolutely. I mean, they talk about journeys, you know, we call these sessions journeys, but it, it does absolutely, um, sort of pinpoint for you what, what our journeys are as human beings you know it's a really brilliant encapsulation of that in a way that I think no other organization can bring to the public in in that way that you do I mean so, it, it, if anything it's it's overwhelming uh, yeah. you know working commercially with it because obviously you know we've got publishing and picture libraries etc and retail but it's hard to when you think about the treasures of the British Library and we sometimes you try to define it you know wow I mean there are things that people you know, definitely connect with um, more than others. But you're like, wow, it's also incredible. I mean, incredible Bibles and Qurans and just, uh, you know, and as you say, you, I, I, I like the handwritten manuscripts, you know, from all sorts of authors. And because it never stops, we've got Andrew Levy's collection now, that, that was only donated a couple of years ago. Michael Palin recently donated. So it just never stops, you know, and whatever you're interested in, mm -hmm. um, there's something in there. It, it, it's just, it's, I always say the library is a tantalising place. There's so much, you know, it really is an iceberg. You can't, you can't get to most of it. And, and occasionally, I mean, I, when we reunite, so the Magna Carta was originally signed in 1215. There are four copies of it and two are in the library collections, one's at Salisbury and one's at Lincoln. But we reunited them in 12, in fact, they were never in the room together in 1215, but we brought them together in 1215. And it was just a moment where I was on my own in that room. And again, it's that precious who gets to do that? And, yeah. and, and uh, you know, and it, it, the Magna Carta was revoked almost as soon as it was written. However, it's hugely symbolic. And, and in fact, it's uh, 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 quite a lot of the points from the Magna Carta are in the, lots of American state constitutions. Yeah. So it's really important to American visitors. So Magna Carta is one of our treasures. I mean, it's the least beautiful of our treasures in many ways. And, yeah, so it's, but, it's so significant and um, yeah, just, I love those moments. What have you been most proud of then? The thing I'm always most proud of is my team and that's easy to say and, you know, it sounds a bit glib, but it's everything to me. Um, I don't have the skill to deliver what we deliver every day. I'm absolutely dependent on the skills and, and the dedication of my team and that's whether it's you know somebody making an inquiry at the front desk or or whether that's you know publishing a fantastically beautiful exhibition catalogue I can't do that but that sense that every day there are a team of people out there doing doing that with some input from me I always say I'm the I'm the person who helps decide where we're going every year and, and what we're trying to do. And that's my job. I try to get rid of the barriers, uh, not always successfully, um, but that's my job is to try and steer it a little bit, take some of the, the flack away from people. And I think I've always done that. And, and I had a fun, one of my favourite teams was when I first worked in Odbins and I had um, basically somebody who went on to be a professional illustrator so you can imagine the quality of the you know we used wow. to paint our own windows so uh, all the tickets were beautifully written because we had all handwritten so yeah. everything was immaculate the shot was perfect uh, 
Then I had an assistant manager who was extremely charming and uh, was particularly charming to, to older ladies, And but he was a real smooth talker, so he was a fantastic salesman. Yeah, yeah. Uh, then I had a, a sales assistant who was just a lovely, you know, sensible, all-round person. And we used to, it was, we did used to kind of give little incentives to each other, but it wasn't me as the manager doing that. It was literally like, right, who can sell the most of this? And we'd buy each other cinema tickets and just tiny little things. But it was just a moment of probably less than two years. But what I, I realised quite early on in my uh, management career, and I thought, that's what works. Yeah, I can't write labels like that. I can't be as charming as that. I can't, but I'm very good at getting all those people to do those things on my behalf. I mean, is that what you would pass on as your top tip, let's say, to other managers? It's absolutely fundamental. Mm -hmm. It doesn't, it depends what you want to achieve. So I suppose what I would pass on and what I've learned is you have to have some sense of what matters to you. I mean, why do, why do we make the decisions we make? Uh, when I see, and, and you know, I, I think most commercial people in the cultural sector have had frustrations at times because you know we're not the fundamentally most important thing about the organization no. and no. decisions get made and which can be very difficult and, or, or, and even frustrating so my advice to my team is always what is it that we are trying to achieve sit back don't just go headlong into something because you, you, there are so many barriers and pitfalls many of which are hidden that you just have to say, well, what, what is it I want to achieve this year? So actually, maybe there's this thing we'd like to resolve, but actually you haven't got the F, you know, you just haven't got the capacity to do it. You know, we I, I think it's important as a manager to realize what what's, you know, resources are finite, and that includes people and their energy and their effort and their motivation. You know, so how do you best enhance that? And that so you always have to think about the team. Um, but even with the team, is trying to protect them from you know, burning out, being very frustrated about things and saying, you know, actually, we have achieved a lot. And, you know, I'd never say, oh, because we opened that shop or worked in, you know, we've done lots of things over the years, including the Olympics at Greenwich and things like that. But it's never one thing. And it was certainly never just me. So I think my it's always been those moments my proudest moments is where everybody gets together at some point in the year and you just go, well, that was bloody brilliant, wasn't it? You know, whether, whether it's, Fantastic. you know, I'm going to dance at the Christmas party or whatever. Yeah, like, that's yeah. where I get my energy from. It's, it's seeing people evolve and it's getting them to understand that about themselves. What motivates that? You've got to understand your own motivation because ultimately we'll never, you know, never ever, you could write a long list and you'd never achieve it. Or you could say some people literally go well I want to be the chief executive and therefore that's the path they're going to follow and they, they're going to do that whether it's a de your detriment or not so that's what they're going to do and you have to understand that if you don't understand that where you know I'll say well there's no point fighting that person because they're never going to change you literally if you sat back you'd say they are going to keep repeating their behavior there's nothing I can do about it so literally for my health and for me to achieve what how do I respond to that and I think I've learned not to be quite so head on with things and go, OK, let's sit back and say, how do I achieve it? But I say, ultimately, um, I, I've only achieved anything because I've managed on the whole, not always. I'm not I'm not a saint. Um, and I'm sure there are people out there who can't, can't stand me. But, um, you know, I, on the whole, um, I've managed to foster some pretty 
yeah, good relationships, I think. Yeah, and, yeah, and yeah. That has been the hallmark of your career, absolutely. So at some point in your career then, did conversely, did somebody give a, a brilliant piece of advice to you that has stuck with you through the years? Yeah, actually it was a friend, but it was a piece of advice that was good for life. And she's a very perceptive person. One day she said to me, you don't always have to go straight through that big barrier in front of you. Sometimes you can walk around it. Mm-hmm. And I... I actually have this vision sometimes of myself. So I, I, I've devised a kind of helicopter view. And that is me as a little stick figure walking along up to a great big boulder and trying to walk through it. And then, you know, an alternative helicopter view of somebody, little stick figure walking around the big boulder. Yeah. And it's, it's quite helpful sometimes to say, actually, yes, you can be determined and, and that's all very, uh, you know, honourable and all of that, but actually it can be very tiring. And you can just, and perhaps not even sensible. And it took her to say that to me, to go, oh my God, yeah, I really do that. Uh, And so I I still reflect on that and say, visual image, which helps me. What are your thoughts about the next five years, say? I mean, I think it will recover, but I think it will be different. And I think COVID, just as we all know, and we're probably all sick to death talking about it, but I think it's accelerated some of our thinking. Mm-hmm. It's it's made us face up to some things which probably would have taken much longer to do because there wasn't the, maybe the will or the resource to do it. So that is, you know, clearly digital. And But with retailing, I mean, interesting, I was just reading some, uh, you know, the, the, the new supermarkets, which will have no staff in them at all. Yeah. Yeah, you know, which is just slightly terrifying, isn't it? But then, you know, as a retailer, you know, I hate shoplifters. So, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) So maybe maybe if we eradicated shoplifting, that would be a great thing. Yeah, yeah, I I think we're going to have to be different, and I think it's interesting, isn't it, how quickly things like and and this is more about catering, but you know how quickly veganism has become something really fundamental. So it was always there, but now just the number of people who talk about vegan diets. The, the kind of, and you again, John, you've heard me talk about this many times, that kind of values-based retailing, which lots of people in the cultural sector are very good at, I, I think it, it is going to become even more critical. Now, there are challenges, and, and not least about pricing, uh, you know, cost of everything going up and how accessible you are. But, you know, even at Christmas, family members who'd never mentioned things like plastic before were going, oh, I do that because I don't like plastic wrapping. And I was like, my God, you know, there's been some kind of revolution. Thank God. Uh, And, you know, I was doing talks about um, the fact that we should be looking at plastic in the supply chain in in retail and culture 10, 15 years ago. And and people like, yes, but it's too expensive to do. And, and, you know, it's just too expensive the other way now, isn't it? Um, It's too expensive for the planet and it will become too expensive for your sales because people have finally started to take notice so, so i think absolutely i think covid brought about a real i don't know a reckoning with ourselves about our culture and i think and i think because of black lives matter as well i think there's so much change really necessary change but i think the people who grasp that will really benefit so it's there is this quality of product is provenance and I think that goes through retail and catering. Yeah. Um, but it is also about, you know, cost, new technologies. And, and very, that's always the difficult thing for the sector, because unless you're one of the big players, it's hard to invest. 
And we had a massive battle on our hands just to 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 get onto the Shopify platform. But you know, it's it's so much better. It's so much better yes, to, yes, than yes. than trying to build things yourself. And uh, so I think we all know that people are very impatient, and they you know, and this whole idea of staffless supermarkets is all about that frictionless trading isn't it and we all want things to be simple we all want systems at work we, we won't put up with our shops where the stock isn't up to date and you're trying to buy things that aren't there and so we've become we've become very impatient in lots of ways about speed what do you think about the customer will there be a different customer in the future i mean we're really suffering from the lack of overseas visit at the moment well i could only say from if you reverse it I am so desperate to have a foreign holiday that, you know, <laughs> and I'm the person who's literally going to, you know, like, you know, I love Italy. So yeah. I, I would you know, normally at some point in the year go to Italy or Spain and, and go to museums and galleries and, and buy things in the shop. And so I am that person in reverse. Yes. And I'm absolutely desperate to do it. I, I'm so sick now. Of, and I love Britain. And I, I had a lovely camping holiday in the, in the West Country in Wales. And it was brilliant. But I still... I'm still miss that kind of even if it's a long weekend so I, I I think people do want that I think they want that connection to culture um I do think it will come back we have the added you know I I suppose whatever your views are on Brexit it, the combination of Covid and Brexit has made us feel a bit unwelcoming I think and, and you know and that's played out I think in kind of university application statistics I'm, I'm not sure but I, I'm a bit concerned about that bit concerned about London I, I think other cities may benefit more and I think people are starting to discover their local culture and local museums and that's brilliant you know that's that is really important I think it's going to be hard yeah. but I think we'll recover we'll I think that passion for culture will will never go away I think say retailing itself will have to change but I, I'm personally I think that's great because I you know I've always been saying advocate of of having to adapt to a world where we create less waste and um, we, we're thoughtful about how we do retailing. But uh, yeah, I think the tourists will come back. Do you have a favourite work of art and why you do? That's, it's such an impossible question, Jim. I'm sorry. And I was like, what is a work of art? What is a work of art? Is it a poem? Is it an album? Yeah, I think it but anyway, let's stick with the art history theme because that's that's. I mean, all those things matter to me. You know, you, you've you've said the word journeys a, a few times, and for me, art is about that journey. I, um, don't we live in a fantastic age? I could sit here and I could go on any journey I want, pretty much, because I could just go. Which century do I want to be in? Where, where do I, what country do I want to be in? What experience do I want to have? And I can literally from my front room summon up a, a book or or an image or and and. I, can do that I and mean, go anywhere in time in the or into the future or or any country and experience that you know something of, of somebody else's world or time and I think that's amazing and that's what I love about history and art history so uh my favorite artists are definitely from they all impact on each other because it's definitely Caravaggio and Velasquez and Goya and Manet and Francis Leshy and, and that they're my favorite artists I don't know why they're all quite dark I think it's because they have this real sense of humanity about them. And, you know, Caravaggio is a, because he paints ordinary people in extraordinary ways. Um, uh, and uh, I, I, I like to, well, when you could, uh, and I, I am going back to the National Gallery in a couple of weeks, actually, but I love going to the National Gallery and, and just revisiting some of my favourite paintings. Yeah. But really hard to choose one. 
uh, I, I love, I, I suppose I have to say favourite, I have to give something that I've loved for a long time. So I will go with Manet because I've always loved Manet. Uh, it was the bar of the Folie Bergère that I went to the Cotol Institute when it was in um, Bloomsbury. And uh, so I had seen a little picture in black and white and I walked in, I was with my sister and uh, I had to sit down. That's literally, that is the bar of Folie Bergère. It's a bonkers painting. Um, but my favourite of Manet's paintings is probably Olympia. And uh, it was the first time that I travelled abroad deliberately to go to an art exhibition and I went to the Manet exhibition in Paris and uh, yeah just an amazing painting because it's so challenging it's so uh, that that is a, a female subject in the painting who is no longer an object and who looks stares you right back yeah uh, makes yeah. you feel very uncomfortable yeah, yeah. and sets set about reconsidering you know the the images of women in painting and was hated at the time so I like you know I like money because he's provocative and difficult and even even now when you look at the painting you stand back you feel challenged by it yeah. so I like that it makes you question things and of course it does hop back to, to other Venuses by Velasquez and etc but uh yeah there's just something about him that has always made me think you know because you go well this is a really even the balance of the it doesn't make sense i mean it doesn't actually you can't where are you in the picture yes but yes. it's the first person i thought i'm in the painting i'm the observer i've really been caught out he catches you out and that's why i love about it happy places are things that we all have i guess and it's a bit of a it's a bit of a cliche but we're really curious to know if if you have such a thing such a thing as a happy place I love the water, so I'm always happy mm -hmm. in a swimming pool or the sea. Uh, I went for a swim in the sea on um, New Year's Day down at Whitstable. So that wasn't, that was, I went out oh and put my wetsuit on. <laughs> I went out and put my wetsuit on, but I did, I did go for 20 minutes or so, but I, my face is like putting it in an ice bucket. But yeah, I mean, I'm not a marathon swimmer, and like but I do like, I love swimming. And again, going back to childhood, some people say, people get very snobby about even people get snobby about all sorts of things even swimming so now it's all about people got watches and bottles and i was like oh my god i used to love swimming uh, the stench of chlorine when i was seven years old you know going to the swimming pool and coming out and eating a packet of salt vanilla crisps i mean i'm in heaven oh how evocative um, that's brilliant I, oh god i loved it it's my favorite place yeah. then I guess ultimately, that's a quite a solo experience. So ultimately, and again, you'll know this, Jill, but my favourite place is being on the dance floor with just a group of friends or colleagues and just having a laugh. I mean, you know, you work hard and, you know, again, snobbery aside, you put Dancing Queen on. Yeah, it won't keep yeah, me off the dance floor. Yeah, 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 absolutely. It's absolutely. really, I mean, they're hilarious lyrics when you listen to them now. But yeah, that's what I was doing at New Year. Got my vinyl out, play a few tunes. Dance around the lounge. <laughs> when you went in the water, <laughs> that was the next day. <laughs> that was the sobering up the next day. Oh, that is so lovely. That is so absolutely. You know, it's it's a great way to wind up the conversation. Thank you ever so much for that. Uh, that Caroline, that's been brilliant. It's been quite a journey from for the girl from Wales. When 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 you look back on it, hasn't it? And uh, it's still got a lot of road yet to travel, but. Oh. Yes, it's brilliant to talk to you and I'd just um, like to thank you very much indeed for joining us today and uh, look forward to talking again soon. Thanks, Jill. Bye for now.